Right, gang? You like to watch new stuff, right? I mean, who doesn't? I do. Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time, like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama, a new season of The Kardashians starring the Kardashians, of course, and Grand Cayman Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's streaming now, and it's waiting for you on Hulu. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, the internet, and welcome to season 317, episode two of Dirt Daily Zeitgeist, a production of iHeartRadio. This is a podcast where we take a deep dive into America's shared consciousness, and it's mm-hmm. Tuesday, December twelfth, twenty twenty-three. Oh yeah, it's a doozy. Twelve, twelve. You know what Is that it? means? Oh, it's National Ambrosia Day for you people How eating marshmallows in the salad. It's National Poinsettia Day. It's national. It's uh, International Universal Health Coverage Day. Yeah, we fuck with that. National Dingaling Day. I do have no clue what the fuck that is. And Gingerbread Is-it House the Day. Pastry? No, it's got a picture of Santa no, like on a phone. Dingo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a day to call people that you haven't heard from in a while. All right. Well, yeah, why not? You know, just check in. It's called Santa. Yeah. (laughs) Check in on Santa. He's lonely up there in the home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever bothers to ask him. That's why Tim Allen was such an asshole. Right. No one asks what he wants for Christmas. Well, my name is Jack O'Brien, a.k.a. Sucking Around This Candy Cane. Why don't this taste like shit? <laughs> Peppermint candy should be outlawed, and I will fight about it. Mm. So That's courtesy of a Seagerful 1229. E Seagerful. Yeah. E C. Careful. Anyways, <laughs> to the tune of Rocket Around the Candy Cane, uh, or Rocket Around the Christmas Tree, about. The weird phenomenon of being able to use a peppermint stick as a mm-hmm. straw in an orange. I don't trust it, mm-hmm. but I'm going to try it out. I'm intrigued, Miles. Mm-hmm. And I'm thrilled to be joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Miles Gray. It's Miles Gray. Yes, it's the Lord of Lancashire shouting out his very own Los Angeles Grakers who have won the in-season NBA tournament. Such a fantastic victory for us. Also, shout out to the Dodgers for bringing me one step closer to being not only am I Hideo Noho, but I am now Shohei Smoktani because he's also (laughs) wearing the Dodger blue coming up. So it's just a very, very exciting time to be an Angelino and and sports fan and and fair weather as well. Well, uh, we are thrilled to be joined in our third seat by an award-winning journalist who's worked for places like the Washington Post, Mm -hmm. the LA Times, Mm -hmm. the Financial Times of London. He's also the author of the books The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade, and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. 
And more recently, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and The Missing Revolution. Please welcome to the show, Vincent Bevin! Hello. hello. What's hello, up, man? Thank, thank you for having me. Welcome, Thanks for welcome. doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Is tomorrow really National Ambrosia Day? Is that a real thing? Did you? Yeah, you no, that no, up? It's, it's legit. There's a, there's an okay, entire website that just has every day. There's something nonsensical or of deep consequence. Like yeah, at sensical, the same time, deeply sensical. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Runs yeah. the gamut from sensical to deeply nonsensical. De- deeply nonsensy. Yeah, but yeah, it's, like uh, mainly it's consumer groups, corporate groups, or lobbyists just naming something a day to yeah. yeah. Yeah, give themselves a reason to collect a paycheck, you know? Exactly, exactly. The bullshit economy thrives. We like to cover the bullshit economy as much as possible. And you're coming to us from London. Yeah, I'm in London now. Uh, I'll be back in Los Angeles by the end of the year for, you know, home for the holidays, but I'm currently in the United Kingdom. Is that where you, is that your home base at the moment? Yeah, it has been. I mean, uh, I've been on the road, like, actually for for years for the second book between Sao Paulo and London often. Okay, uh, But, wow. I'm, like, at the end of this book tour, I've, yeah, resettled into London for a bit. Cool, cool. Love it. And you've been at some of the protests in London for, you know, Palestinian rights and survival and ha- depending how... On, depending on where you get yeah. your news, I heard it was a pro-Hamas uh, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of, yeah, yeah, I've been, yeah, I've been at the protests, uh, weekly here, like not far from, from, from where I am now. Yeah, absolutely. And like, uh, absolutely that presentation, they, they tried it here. Certainly. I mean, the government here is quite committed to demonizing anyone like to the left of, I don't know, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Joe Biden even, or even like to the left of Rishi Sunak. So yeah, there was, there was quite a big narrative that was either anti like, mostly anti-Semitic or quite about supporting Hamas. And then when I went there, you know, even though I should have known better, I even kind of expected to see some elements. Maybe there are out there. But what I found was like quite a lot of families and kids and quite like a... If they're out there, they'll like find atmosphere. them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the thing. Well, that's them. kind of that put them related there. to what I've been working on is that yeah. Yeah, you exactly. can, if, the, if a protest is large enough, you can usually find an element in the crowd. You can usually find a fact to support your narrative uh, if, you, yeah, if you look hard enough. And sometimes the narrative will be, you know, anti-Semitism. And sometimes it'll be, they just like really fuck with America. They just want to like be America. Uh, just like whatever, whatever honors their preconceived notions coming in. This, this rises fest. to the top quite all, almost all the time. Usually when you yeah. send a cadre of U.S.-based or uh, correspondents for the U.S. media to cover some uprising in some part of the world, someone will see a desire to become junior, like B-League America. Which often like shocked and horrified some of the actual people that I met <laughs> that put together protest movements in the last 15 years, but it almost always happens. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff. Your second book is an amazing read and, you know, really touches on a lot of the stuff that we talk to uh, talk about on a regular basis on, on this show. But before we get to any of it, we do like to get to know our guests a little bit better and ask you what is something from your search history that is revealing about who you are? So this one is a bit too obvious because it is kind of like quite on brand. But the only thing that I searched for today on Google, other than how to look at your own Google search history in preparation <laughs> to answer that question, is Millet inauguration. I wanted to see the ways in which uh, the new president of Argentina had been covered by the English language press. He took power yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to see what he had done how how 
sort of uh, controversial he tried to be at the ceremony and what people picked up on from that from that takeover. And what would you find? How are people well, his, I mean, he's like a super hyper anti-political guy. Do you know about the guy that I'm talking yeah. about? He has yeah. the sideburns. He's an anarcho-capital. He's like a real Reddit president. Right. Yeah. yeah, if Reddit became a president. Yeah, it's the first Reddit republic, I think. Argentina starting 2023. And um, he toned down things a little bit yesterday. He tried to do, you know, he, he I think he's trying to figure out a way to actually govern the country, whereas his, his campaign was really about I'm going to destroy the, the state Everything. entirely. We're going to get rid of the peso. We're going to bring in the dollar. I've cloned all of my dogs and they, you know, they speak to me. He tried, I think he tried to tone it down a little bit. He did say that. It's not. I, yeah, I, I just a dog thing. He had so yeah. many videos that were like, felt like low rent, like TikToker type shit where he's like, this fucking bureaucracy done, gone. I'm tearing it up physically for you. And you're like, wow. Okay. Very, well, very yeah, his powerful. thing was the chainsaw, right? Like, I'm yeah, going to yeah. bring it. I'm going to take a chainsaw. And it's like, okay, you know, in in South America, that has a lot of content. You know, there's like the destruction of the Amazon, which is a big thing that his friend Jair Bolsonaro was all about helping to get done. So that was his thing. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna destroy the state, and then obviously, and then what will grow out of the rubble will be some amazing uh, capitalist utopia. Right. Right. Yeah. Just destroy everything, and then let let the magic happen. Also, kind of a a logic that I think people on both sides have engaged in that you talk about in your book. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice, it's an appealing, I mean, he's, yeah, it's an appealing theory, right? I mean, this is another thing that he said, he's like, oh, uh, this is like the, uh, my election is like the fall of the Soviet Union, which right. is like, again, that was the idea, you know, there was the, there was the glorious moment that was broadcast to the world, like the day the Berlin Wall fell, but then what a lot of people actually went through afterwards was that democracy and markets didn't just grow out of nowhere. Uh, things, things turned out to be quite difficult for, for quite a lot of people afterwards, so. You know, right. that thinking it's, you know, it's, it's appealing the idea that all you have to do is smash everything up and some magical force will, will provide the solution, but it just doesn't tend to work out that way. Right. Cause yeah. the thing I got just at least from like gleaning the headlines sounded like him just basically saying like, here comes austerity. And yeah. that was kind of, but he's like, there's going to be some hard times. Like, cause I'm, that's fuck it's, it's austerity time, baby. Yeah. I mean, things are bad. I mean, things are ripe for someone like him, right? Right. Like, the economy, you know, inflation is very high in Argentina. You could see why an anti-political sort of attack on the system, kind of, I'm an outsider candidate, might be able to do well. But yeah, I mean, it's absolutely going to be awful. I mean, even he admits that, <laughs> but I, think it's, I, don't think, I don't think he knows exactly how it's going to go, and neither does anybody else. Right, yeah. Huh. Does anti, like, because obviously, you know, your book covers a anti-establishment impulse that we saw sweep around the globe, we have covered a lot just that that impulse in the United States, right. uh, the fact that, you know, the Trump presidency kind of came about because Bannon saw an impulse and was like, Some, somebody's going to win who's not the who is like railing against institutions. Right. How, how do you like, do you see that kind of continuing unabated picking up steam how, how do you think about that? I know that's a kind of a big question and we'll get into more specific permutations of it. But well, the way that this has gone on a case by case basis, and I hope this doesn't have to be the pattern that every single political community in the entire world goes through, is that someone gets elected that says, I'm going to tear down the whole system. I'm against everything. I'm an outsider. And like, I'm 
from California, like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was one of these, you know, he's one mm-hmm. of the, you know, way, way ahead of the curve on this one. And it was a ha 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 ha, we're voting for Arnold Schwarzenegger, ha ha ha. <laughs> uh, often what happens is that that person, unsurprisingly, doesn't do a good job. And then they bring in the guy who like really knows how to actually do the job. So after Arnold Schwarzenegger, we get Jerry Brown, who's like actually from the 70s. After right. Bolsonaro in Brazil, you like bring back Lula, who was the last guy who finished presidency with uh, really high approval ratings. That's like tends to be what happens in each case is that, oh, yeah, it's, it was really appealing, this idea that being from outside the system, which is usually like half a lie, right? Like there's you're usually like encouraged not to pretend that you're really an outsider, even if you're not. Right. And then, oh, yeah, that's that's not actually how you govern. And then you replace that the anti-political candidate, the anti-political politician with like the most establishment person, right. you know, again, right. after after Trump, you get you get Joe Biden, who's like the guy that Obama grabbed in 2008 to put on his campaign to prove that he was kind of a regular Democrat, that he wasn't yeah. too wild. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, but I think all of this anti-political sentiment is like the wrong an- answer to a real question, which is why is it that everyone feels that governments don't represent them properly? Why is it that everyone wants to say fuck you to the system whenever they can? And that question, I think, still remains unanswered. So like the under the underlying crisis is still unresolved. But I think one by one, states or nations are realizing, oh, well, this this response doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Just all getting the wrong, the same wrong answer. All at once. <laughs> well, like, is a different type of wrong answer. Like the anarcho-capitalist yeah. approach is a relatively new one. Usually you got right populism or like yeah. dictatorship or like whatever Trump is, or dictatorship justification, like in Bolsonaro, but like the really online, like libertarian meme guy, that's a new one. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. It's going to yeah. be hilarious. The lulls are going to be worth it alone. Yeah. Oof. Well, and Ramaswamy yeah. didn't do, do too good because he was peeing on a hot mic over the weekend during like a Twitter spaces thing. So our our meme lord as president may not may not come to fruition this time around. Oh, no. he did? He did a full naked gun? Yeah, dude, just like in a full piss, and they're like, uh, oh, what? Man. Like, came back, like, oh, so sorry. My bad. Yeah. That's a, that's a true, like, as somebody who spends a lot of time on Zoom with Air, AirPods, and I, that's a constant nightmare of mine. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that would happen. Yep. Oh, no. What? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what, uh, Vincent, what is something you think is overrated? Movies. Wow. Just generally. Yeah. Moving Writ pictures, <laughs> moving pictures. They don't. Why are pictures? Why are they moving? Yeah, <laughs> make them stop. No thanks. Yeah, you know it's fine. They're fine, but I've had enough. I still, I give them some ratings, but not. They're they're overrated generally. What yeah. happened? Like, I'm tired what, of it. I'm tired of something. It. What was a recent? Who one hurt you? Who yeah. hurt you? Vincent? What was your most recent pain? <laughs> Cinema one. No, no pain. I have oh, a, okay. like a dull, a dull, like a dull feeling of pleasure when I think of them, but. You know, that's that's about it. Right, right, yeah. right. Which is a lower rating than society gives the movies. I think it's been great so far, but I'm over. I'm done. <laughs> we talk a lot about movies like filling in for people's like images of how things operate. Like when, when you ask somebody to imagine a country they've never been to, they're generally going to be like, OK, well, I think I saw that in like George Clooney's Syriana or, you know, I don't think he directed that, but, and you're somebody who has like been to, you, you go to those countries and like, you know, learn the languages and, yeah. and meet the people there. Is that, do you think that's partially where it comes from or you just like th- think they suck? No, I think they're okay. I've been mean to, to move this into a more serious territory now that you bring it 
to bring that up. I guess with this book, I did think a lot about technology and what is new and strange about the way that we live compared to whatever 20 years ago. And like a big narrative about the mass protest that I cover. And again, this is not why I said movies. I'm just starting to think about it. Yeah. Is that, oh, it's social media. Social media is a new technology. Social media is technology. Right. But like the more I considered what was going on in the, the last 20 years, I, got, I started to like think about photography as technology and like a yeah, pretty you mentioned new that one. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Like I do it really quickly, but like in the history of humanity, it's pretty new that we're able to see stuff that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Like directly that's not, in front like of our head. Yeah. yeah. We're like photography. Definitionally, everything that you're seeing in a photograph or in a moving picture isn't happening anymore. Right. It is a, it is a technological trick to reproduce the, the, the light patterns that makes the human brain think that they're seeing a thing that did happen in the past, but has no longer happening. And like, obviously that's not going away. We're going to have to learn. We're learning to deal with that as, as, as humanity. But I don't know, for whatever reason, I, I've just been thinking about it a lot. Yeah. It's kind of strange. I mean, it's kind of strange. We come home after, you know, being outside and then we watch a screen of people pretending to live lives. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't I know. I mean, we're still <laughs> not over the, the like ability to look at images or short, you know, video clips of things actually happening around the world. And now we're moving into an era where it's like, or things that somebody just edited, you know, or f- deep faked to to make. So, like, not that that really matters, because like we said, uh, when you're using an entire globe's worth of, like, inputs, of you, you can find somebody doing anything you need them to do. And Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, no, but, like, the deep, fake, the deep fake thing is weird, right? Like, yeah, it's going to, we're going to have to learn to deal with it as, like, a human race. Like, how do we... Because the human body is constituted to react to things as if they're really happening, right? Like a lot of what I saw powering mass protests in the 2010s was like a deep revulsion, like a like a like a visceral disgust at something really horrible happening. And like imagine the because like the human body when it sees like violence, it kind of gets keyed up to maybe either run away or participate. Like imagine now, you know, in 10 to 20 years, we're able to see scenes of violence that aren't happening at all, but yet the human body still responds as if it's a yeah. It's material reality. Anyways, I don't know. I don't know what any of that means or what we're supposed to do about it. But I spent a lot of time thinking about how new all it all kind of is. Yeah, I think it it also brings up this other point. Like the the guy who invented the loudspeaker, like perfected it in the early 20th century, always felt like responsible, like doomed throughout his life because he had altered just minutely the ability for somebody to speak to people who weren't within a 20 foot radius, you know, mm. w- without raising his voice like that. He was like, I feel partially responsible for the rise of fascism in the, in the 1930s. Really? Yeah. Is yeah. That, is that, is that a real story that he, I'm pretty sure unless I got my sources wrong a long time ago, but yeah, like he, he really felt like he had fucked up and well, partially it's interesting that he would. it's interesting that he would, hone in on that phenomenon because arguably he did help make fascism happen but he also helped make like a million other things happen like why is that the one thing that he thinks right that he gift, gifted to or the you know the poison big story at the time i feel like yeah i guess it was all over yeah. it was all over the, yeah it's <laughs> a good thing but, to say like at a family dinner he's like well y'all don't feel guilty about basically bringing on fascism so <laughs> go ahead because you would you like everything that happens after photography and then everything that happens after the ability for of us to record sound is like you can't undo it. It's like everything after 1930 <laughs> right. is a result of the recordings of sound, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. What's something you think is underrated? I'm, I'm changing this now because I just wanted to, to mention Ambrosia, Ambrosia salad. Hey. Yeah. So it is my middle name, number one, Ambrose. Oh. Okay. Oh, nice. Ambrose. And I used to know a performer back in San Francisco whose drag name was Ambrosia Salad. And I thought that was a very good. <laughs> so, yeah, that's awesome. I, that, 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 that's, that got me out of that question because it allowed me to. Yeah, that's my. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure if in if the dish is named after or like, I think maybe the old Roman name is named after like the nectar of the gods. And then that's right. also what the etymological story behind the salad. Is that right? Yeah, 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 exactly. But, but apparently it's like the earliest recipes are from like the 19th century. Like people have been tinkering with the the sweet ambrosia for a long time. And now it's we're just at a place where it's like whipped cream and sh- sh- sugar and fruit shaped yeah. things. Ambrosia definitely like ha- has its proponents to a level like I don't I, I am not experienced enough with ambrosia to like have a strong take on it. But I do respect something where people are like, yeah, we're just naming this shit the shit after the natural of the gods. Like, that's how good it is. <laughs> what is it's it? A good it's a fucking it's really best. Good. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's, it's one of those things. It's not like gourmet. But when you eat it, you're like, how the fuck am I going to get mad at like fruit and cream together? Like, yeah, yeah. it's not offensive. It, it is a, often upsetting when like a really good name is given to something that is not good. Like right. Amazon makes me upset. <laughs> yeah, because the the Nailed Amazon it. as a forest, the Amazon as a, a like a, a classical myth are like both very cool things. Yes, and then Jeff Bezos turned like a mail delivery company yeah. into Amazon. I think that's right. not fair. Somehow, no. there's like injustice done there. I think that Amazon. We need to think of either the island of warriors back in antiquity or like the Amazon forest. Not like how do you order something? It'll yeah. really piss you off when he was trying to call it amazing. And someone was like, you should change it to Amazon. Seems like a good idea. Like, what about Amazing? Like, well, yeah. what about Elon Musk did try to name like 25 things X and everyone yeah. his entire life was yeah. like, you can't do that. That's stupid until he became rich enough that he could. And now it's X everything. Isn't like, isn't, yeah. isn't the AI company X AI too? Like it's just, every, he's Xifying. Fuck, he, he's Wayne Campbell. He's Wayne Campbell yeah. from Wayne's World. <laughs> we all know. He, he wishes he was Wayne Campbell from <laughs> Wayne's World. He thinks that seems to be, uh, he's incorporating all of his mannerisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The X thing is like, is like the uh, producer who just really wanted to put a mechanical spider in his movie and... <laughs> <laughs> like Kevin Smith was working for him on his Superman script and he was like what about like a giant robot <laughs> spider and they're like ah it doesn't really make sense for this particular thing and then he like watches the guy's movie Wild Wild West <laughs> movie that yes. takes place in the Wild West somehow has a robotic spider in it <laughs> well, it's, like, it's there he goes powered. God is fucking robot <laughs> it's steam powered that's yeah. how I get yeah. around all the technological plot holes yeah just taking, just having an idea and never taking the number, the sheer number of no's that you are receiving as any indication other than, right. oh, they just, they don't get it. Yeah, It's, it's the world that doesn't understand, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and get into the book. We'll be right back. Yep. Zite gang, customers are rushing to your store, but do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it you know, like a literal POS. 
Well, you need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Connect with customers inline and online. Look, you want to use TikTok? Well, guess what? They have plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns on platforms just like that. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system. Or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Now, I was looking at Shopify.com, and I'm trying to get some answers. Let's say, uh, you know, how to bustling retail business and i need you know maybe uh, some hardware to be able to sell my wares on the street take credit card payments whatever and i know shopify is easy to use half the time i buy something online i'm like oh yep they're using shopify and if you need to learn more check out their website it's super easy to navigate whether you have questions about how you can optimize your inventory or again looking for hardware to make sales easier shopify.com has all of that just go there check it out so sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash tdz all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TDZ to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash TDZ. You like to watch new stuff, right, Zygang? I know I do. Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time, like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump. Join Lisa and her hand-selected staff at Chateau Rosabelle, a glamorous estate in the French countryside, as they live, work, and play together 24-7. Vanderpump Villa is where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. And don't miss the new season of The Kardashians, uh, starring The Kardashians, of course. And season five promises new horizons for the entire Kardashian clan. And if you're looking for steamy streams, check out Grand Cayman Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set on the tropical Caribbean island of Grand Cayman, where the rich come to play. But be warned, it's a small island and secrets don't stay secret for long. So come check out what's new on Hulu this month. It's streaming now and it's waiting for you on Hulu. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. And we're back. back. And, you know, one of the kind of central questions that I went into the book with and that I just think is, is interesting and you kind of open up talking about is just the way that like a, you know, we're, we're interested inherently in the zeitgeist, the idea that there is right. a zeitgeist or a collective consciousness. And, you know, you open your book, which is about like one of these things where for a decade there were these movements that seemed to resemble each other in some ways kind of uh, often superficial 
but spreading around the globe. You you also open your book talking about the spirit of 1968 and the right. idea where like revolution is happening across the globe all at once, almost like there's something in the air. Right. And this is, you know, six years before social media and, right. you know, these protests and uprisings sweep around the world and even in communist countries. So I'd just be interested in first just for framing of the entire conversation, like hearing you speak about what what are the dynamics that are at play there? Like, how do you think something like that happens? Yeah, absolutely. So whether or not we really, truly understand, I think we can come up with theories. Yeah. But historically, revolutions, uprisings are come in waves. They cluster around certain years. And, you know, the best way we have to explain this is people hear about things happening elsewhere. They think maybe I could do this here, even if their conditions are different, even, even if the things they're protesting against are different. And I think media has to be part of the story, right? Because um, before media, it would, would be impossible to, for people to find in Germany to find out what's happening in France, and you know, unless somebody came and told them that's the story. So even like right. in 1848, like, you know, the spring of nations in Europe, you saw like common commonalities across countries. And I think you see an acceleration of that process the more mediatized we become. So 1968, you have quite a lot of back and forth happening between Western Europe and the United States, especially California. Mm. And but also like they're doing slightly different things. Like if you if you just if you just like look at the pictures of it, it may look the same, but there's different things happening. And certainly the people in Prague or in China or in Egypt, which in my book, I kind of say that they all do kind of have their own type of 1968. They're all very different types of movements and, and protesting very different types of, of governments. But like, this seems to be a thing, at least in the histories, in the history of revolution, most serious thinkers do think that there is some kind of like a zeitgeist of rebellion in the air, that there are waves of rebellions, there are clusters of uprisings. I think media has to be part of that story, but like again, we we have to. That's something we impose. That's an explanation we pose on retroactively uh, to make sense of what's happened after right. after it all explodes. Yeah, I mean, there's also the phenomenon of like parallel invention, where you know the light bulb is invented in multiple places around the world, like within you know months of each other, like at least you know years of each other, and so like mm -hmm. we're all kind of working from the same book and coming up with the same ideas. So yeah, I'm just. I, just interested. It's not really the central thesis of your book, but just as somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about that, I, I was curious to hear your thoughts on that. So, yeah. I mean, I uh, guess Zeitgeist is kind of a Hegelian idea, right? And like in this book and in like this, the understanding of what's supposed to be happening in protest, there is kind of some like deep Hegelian assumptions that there is kind of like a world historical spirit, like this, like history with a capital H moves forward. Right. In some grand and mystical way. And so whether or not that's true or not, I think we can all, you know, probably most people are not Hegelians, but, uh, but some people, but, you know, I think a lot of people do kind of have this deep, deep down feeling or assumption that there is kind of like a history with a capital H that moves forward. And this, yeah, this, this ends up actually coming up in the book or for better or worse. Yeah. Another thing you talk about is just this sense among revolutionaries of and this is something that i've just noticed across you know re reading about history of like the joy that people feel and and reading about protests like the fading out of these capitalist roles and you know you you mentioned the idea of a m medieval carnival 
right. where they would kind of topple hierarchies for a set period of time. In the book Dawn of Everything, David Graeber talks about like you know doing uh, archaeological studies of these tribal Native American civilizations that have like that that was actually built into the structure of how they operated, where there would be these holidays where people would change and you know the chiefs or the the police the people who acted as the police would become clowns and you know just all of these like switching of the roles that people had so and it was it was kind of built in that if somebody had a really great hunting season they would then be kind of ritualistically humiliated in front of everybody so that they were not attached to their kind of hierarchical role but right yeah i don't know it it's just interesting like giving people an environment where they can forget their capitalist lives and dissolve into a collective seems to more and more like connect with people and i I feel like is kind of an important part of the equation and part of what makes me hopeful about you know the the fact that there could be some people driven change right is how much there is just that that urge there but obviously you know this is something you think about and put put in the book so just curious to hear your thoughts is is that part of the thing that makes you come away from this and still be hopeful even though the the aims of of the protesters often get thwarted repeatedly in in these stories yeah it's part of it i mean what i guess the main thing that makes me hopeful is that i came away from this book that i did you know, through 200, 250 interviews uh, in 12 countries. And almost everyone, even if they had been, you know, apparently defeated in the short term, had experienced some kind of a a crushing defeat, almost no one had given up on the idea of getting together with other human beings and tried to build a better world. They had, you know, thought about new strategies. They had thought about doing things differently. They had maybe had to leave their home country or gone to jail, but but they had not given up. And a lot of people have said, even if they knew, even after they knew how things ultimately turned out, even if they knew, now know that the story ended in disaster, they would say things like, I could relive that day every day for the rest of my life. It's the most alive that I've ever felt. Yeah, And that feeling is something that I will never stop reliving. And I think that the... That feeling is related to not only what you said about this historical practice of in, of inverting hierarchies and, and sort of creating more direct links between people that you see in all kinds of any any civilization of any complexity. I think when you see these things kind of kinds of things popping up, the medieval carnival, the, the, the case you just outlined. I've, I've read a lot of Graeber books, Graeber's books, but not that one. But I think it's also related to that other phenomenon we spoke about earlier, like the feeling right now, which I think drives the elections of people like Schwarzenegger and Trump and Bolsonaro and Millet, that we're not actually in control of what's happening. The structures that you're supposed to represent us are not actually representing us. There are a few moments in in your daily life when you really feel that you're making history, that you're part of something like a zeitgeist, that you're actually working, connecting with other people and actually imposing your will in the most positive sense, like trying to reshape reality in a way that actually matters at all. And so when those feelings come around for people in this day and age, at this level of like social complexity, and in a a world of interconnected political systems, which I think it is right to believe don't really represent us that well anymore, it feels so incredibly powerful. It feels like 
this is something that I've been starving for because the like right now, what I'm actually doing feels like it's really changing things. Uh, and that is a feeling that I, I think that even if we didn't have to improve the global system, which I think we do, it would, it's, it's like, there's a deep, there's a deep yearning for, for that, uh, in humanity to connect with other people and build something, connect with other people and do something really like to make a difference. And there's not, we don't feel that way very often. Often we're, you know, right. watching movies. There's like a meaningless that has like been encoded yeah. into everything that is pretty frustrating. And I think people assume might be like something that we just like take for granted as like part of day-to-day life. But it really, when you read, uh, you know, historic accounts and like interviews with people who are parts of things like this in your book, and it's really like there is something that, makes you feel alive which yeah suggests to me maybe that's how we're supposed to feel is like alive, <laughs> alive. during our lives you know yeah i mean yeah, yeah you don't feel a lot you know yeah you feel something when you you know like scroll in social media all day and like get mad at a post and then do a post and people get mad at you you feel something but you don't exactly <laughs> feel alive right yeah yeah it's not that omnipotence that like being in the streets or being w- the collective can kind of bring you when you're just kind of, yeah, when it's the digital response version mm-hmm. you're getting to feel something. And I'm like, I'm curious, like in that, you know, like that feeling that allows people to come together and be like, yeah, you know what, I'm I'm also not pleased. I'm angry about this thing, you know, in your book, you know, for people who aren't fully aware, you're examining a lot of these mass movements that you know, most of the time didn't actually end up bringing about the change that the people were seeking. And in fact, movements get co-opted and, you know, can turn into, as you say, like almost bringing the opposite effect of what they wanted initially. Right. Is there something, do you think there is something woven in that? Like that the, like, obviously there are very politically minded activists and people who are organizing and understand like maybe mechanically what has to happen, but because so many are just sort of taken up by this larger feeling that we kind of get stuck in the loop of doing the explosive, like this is our feedback to the the leaders of the world kind of thing, and right. then forgetting what happens after that. I think that yes, partially. I think that so the phenomenon that I choose to build this history around is is mass protests that get so big that they either overthrow governments or fundamentally destabilize governments. So these are movements that at first, unexpectedly, appear to be incredibly successful. Like every so enough people came on the streets that actually the president or the dictator is like fleeing the country or is so scared and so desperate to stay in power that they want to, that they'll give something up to, to the people in the streets in order to stay in power. Now, what happens next ends up being the focus of my book is what I try to do is I go back and see what actually happened in the years that followed after a lot of the foreign uh, journalists have, have have stopped, you know, reproducing the very inspiring images on screens around the planet. What really happened? And to answer that question as to what actually happened, I think is related to your question, somewhat indirectly, but related, is that the way that we are living, starved of this feeling, starved of this actual connection with other you know, we are like digitally, quote unquote, connected because we're, you know, we're, we're sending, you know, messages on screens, but we're, we're, we're living more individualized lives than I think um, most of humanity ever has. We are often responding to like posts. This, this way that we've been living for several decades 
shaped the type of the types of responses which were easiest to put together to real injustice. They shaped the types of things that we did first when confronted with real abuses of power. And I think that is, yes, part of the story. And a lot of a lot of the people said this at the end, like, you know, we at the end of the book, you know, after I've, I've interviewed everyone, I asked them to look back and what happened. And a lot of them said, yes, it was not only this system that we thought that it had had been oppressing us, but that shaped the way that we understood political change. It shaped the way that we could put together responses to injustice. And that ended up meaning that we couldn't get through that first apparent victory to the next step, which was actually creating something better. So, yeah, I do. I do think it's all related. I think that we we and, you know, that's part of the learning process, right? That's part of the what happened in the 2010s is a lot of people got much further than they expected and then realized where the the barriers were. But I think that the fact that we have been living this way for so long is part of the reason that explains why it was the mass protest that came together very, very quickly. That was the way that, that often was the, the automatic response. Like why the 2010s, the, the, the dominant mode of the 2010s rather than other of these you know, years of, of, of uprising was uh, mass protest or the mass, pro- why it was a mass protest decade, if you want to use the subtitle of my book. You know, I, I think one of the things that you end up pointing to is that a, l- a lot of these protests were coming at the right time, right? There, there was this energy and this desire, but they were specifically horizontally organized or organized mm-hmm. to, to resist leadership. And is that kind of the big takeaway that you just you think that future protests, m- protest movements need to kind of. take away from this book is that some manner of organization, some manner of like, you know, if you aren't prepared after you create the change to step in to lead, somebody else is going to lead for you. Is that, would that be kind of the big, you know, because there is the example of this actually working, right? And the big thing there was that the leftists who created the change then involved themselves in national politics right right so right. like would you say that is the big takeaway that they just need to be ready to organize and then lead the that dynamic i think that you just outlined is goes a big goes a long way towards explaining a lot of what happened in many of the cases uh in the book there's like 10 to 13 depending on how you how you count them but that damn dynamic, if you, you know, if the book, the book is indeed uh, built around the question, how is it possible that so many mass protests led to the opposite of what they asked for? You've outlined, I think, yeah, a, a, a major part of the answer, which is that what happened unexpectedly is that more people came out into the streets than, than, than was planned for. Uh, they joined a very specific type of response to injustice, a very specific type of mass protest, which is, you know, which has various elements. Uh, it is apparently spontaneous, leaderless, digitally coordinated. Often, you know, people are finding out about this because of social media or media in general. And then horizontally structured, which means that there's not hierarchy and there's often an idea that there shouldn't be. Uh, and then these are protests in public squares or in, or in uh, public spaces. And when more people come than, expect, than, are, than are expected, then yeah, the government is perhaps dislodged or the government is so weakened that power is up for grabs. 
And often what happened, and you know, this is where you know cases really diverge. But often what happened is whoever was already there, organized, waiting in the wings, steps in and takes power. The person that was like waiting, you know, on, on, off, off, off camera, off stage, takes over. Or you know, sometimes that is the local national elites. They're not always on the right. Sometimes they are on the right. Or especially in the cases of countries that are weaker than the U.S., you often had some neighbor or the U.S. itself coming in to 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 fill that vacuum and, and crush the movement. And then when that kind of counterattack comes, just like it did in 1789 or in the revolutions in previous eras of of global revolution, there's usually a counterattack, a counterrevolution. That protest that hadn't planned on going to war with anybody, that had not planned on even actually overthrowing a government, is really is, was was really not really ready for it. Was really not ready to 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 defend this project, which really concretely consisted of millions of different people with different ideas as to what it was, because they came together so quickly. And, you know, that part of it, I think, it was, is a strength in the beginning is you can get so many people together very quickly because they're sort of everyone's invited. But right. once you get past that first moment, often there was a brief moment when there was an opportunity. And usually the people that took the opportunity were already organized, already ready and already waiting in the wings to seize power. Where, whereas the, the street movements couldn't decide if they believed in taking power or who was supposed to do it or if, what would they would do with it if they would. And while that sort of non-conversation was not happening, like the military sweeps in or a right-wing populist sweeps in or NATO bombs your country and so on. When it comes to like kind of like looking like because, um, you know, looking at the book and, and just kind of thinking about everything, I'm always thinking of like, you know, like how this like relates to the United States too, and how we've, right. we dabble a lot. I mean, yeah, we've seen a lot of mass protests. I mean, like in 2020 felt like a huge moment with black lives matter and people beginning to sort of be able to articulate like sort of what is wrong with our system of policing mm -hmm. only to just get like Nancy Pelosi kneeling in a kente cloth at the Capitol. Right. And then like, right. we're like, what about qualified immunity? There's like a lot of things we could do. And so I look at things like, you know, like United Auto Workers or organized labor right now. Right. And they've been able to wield some really inspiring, like collective power and were able mm -hmm. to extract tangible concessions. But I feel like that a lot of that is because these groups are organized around right. worker power and in a specific industry. And their tool is to withhold their labor, which then affects revenue, which then affects right. the leadership. And then that's how they bring them to the table. When you know, how do we take sort of like, you know, what's from your perspective, what are the learnings? Like, that's a very obviously potent tool that has, that gets very specific. And I think that's probably the benefit of those kinds of movements is because they're all they're very focused on like some very specific things. But when we're talking about sort of like the discontent that people are experiencing in the United States based on inequality or et cetera, how do we take that going merely past the point of these sort of huge gestures you know, these expressions of anger and translate that into outcomes. Because a lot of the times, like you're saying, these movements, they're not, they are horizontally organized or they get so big, like people are like at the picket for police brutality. Some guy's got a sign. He's talking about like batteries give you cancer. And you're like, well, what the fuck is what? Like, <laughs> what are we doing now? Like, so what do we do when it sort of falls outside of that realm of something as specific as like the workplace or outcomes as workers? Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good way to pose the question because those two those two phenomena I think are 
interrelated in different and important ways. On the one hand, one of the things that people said in Egypt or Brazil or, 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 or Libya or uh, around the world at the end of the book is, I wish we would have been more organized before the explosion came. I, w- I wish we would have organized when it seemed like nothing was happening. Like the lesson, the lesson off being essentially build in the off season because you don't know what's going to come. And when something, an opportunity does, does arise, you want to already have, be, you know, connected with other people that believe in the same things as you. And this is kind of the story of the UAW, right? Like in 2017, you do have people that are from the kind of the world of progressive politics realizing, oh, we, we could try to reform the UAW. There's the UAW Reform Caucus. This is a process that starts in 2017 when it seems like, you know, there's no opportunities for organized labor right now. You know, Donald Trump's just won the presidency. What you know, the, the, you know, it, it, but but it, it it ends up paying off much much later, mm-hmm. and it pays off because, as you say, you withdraw, you withhold your labor, and not only do you withhold your labor because this is a this is the really hard move that is almost impossible for the horizontally structured mass protest to pull off, is that you withhold your labor asking for a raise. You may ask for all kinds of things that you think you're not going to get. You ask for them. But you know that there is a amount of money that you can get that will lead you to go back to work. And the boss also knows that. The boss believes, the boss will make an offer and then the union says, oh yes, if we get this amount of concessions from you, we will go back to work. And that's why the boss gives it. Because there's this exit ramp, right? Like everyone can, you know, even if you could, even if you use the, the strike to raise consciousness about working class power in the United States, even if you make all kinds of some demands that you're not going to get this time, the only reason for the boss to give the raise is the credible promise that the labor is restored the next day. And this is something that this was the very strange, like it really confounded everyone that was living through it. Like as it was happening, the politicians, and the original organizers, for example, of this unexpected mass explosion in Brazil in 2013, didn't know how to deal with this phenomenon because the president wanted to give the streets something, but could not figure out what it was that would that could be given, and then that the, the streets could say, "Oh yes, that that's great. We'll take that for now," you know. And again, right. in these movements, you you may ask for really really radical reforms. You may you know bring up um, the possibility of entirely changing or getting rid of the current policing or carceral system. That, that's a, that is a thing that can be part of this larger process. But when, there's no, when there was no ability for the people in power to understand that they would somehow get out of this, like, because they're often, like I said, they're scared. So if you're right. not willing to actually overthrow the government and form a new one, but you can scare the government, then what you want is to use that moment where they're kind of on their back, on their heels to get something, but they're only going to get it if they think that, okay, well, then I, that means that I can stand again. That right. if, I, if I do give this thing, I will be demonst- it will be demonstrated that, you know, mass protest extracts uh, uh, goods from me. It will, be, it will be proven, you know, on the other side of this equation, there, there might be all this more, this radical energy that's, that's born, but at least I can hold on for now. And, and a lot of times in the 2010s, the government couldn't even figure out what to give in order to restore right. order. So then they just 
they end up opted opting for, and this depended on context, repression, just like crack, like just crack, cracking down, or just waiting it out, which turns out kind of works. Mm-hmm. And and that 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 dynamic that you brought up too, like because I you know in 2020, I mean I didn't read, I, I know very little about the George Floyd uprising. I spent a lot of time learning about the rest of these in the book, but I did get like, I did watch, of course, and. And this was something that I started to talk about with my friends that were in, you know, involved on the streets, that if the government just kind of does nothing, the longer things go on, the more likely it is that that guy with the sign that says batteries give you cancer will get on television. Right. Even if, and again, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, even if like that's an FBI agent, you know, if like... It makes sense for the government to just send three people out there to do the dumbest thing that you could imagine, point a camera at them and be like, this is what you are. Is that what you are? And in the case of these horizontally structured uprisings, the uprising cannot say, no, we're not. No, it's not. Which is something that the Black Panther Party and CORE and SNCC, the civil rights groups in the 50s uh, and 60s that inspired so much of contemporary protests as we know it. So much of the 60s movements in the student New Left were really inspired by the civil rights organizations in the 50s and 60s, they absolutely would have had an ability to say that guy, we don't know that guy. Right. But yeah. that, but that, that was lost in the, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag. There's um, um, positive and, neg- and negatives to the, to the dynamic, which allows people like a lot of people to come to the streets at the same time. Whereas often it took like two years to put together the mass demonstrations that were common in the 50s and 60s, because they had to like slowly, slowly one by one recruit people and vet them. Whereas now we can, everyone can show up, but then there's no one to say, yeah, really anything for right. on behalf of the streets. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like when Boogaloo boys showed up at like BLM things and they're like, wait, what? Well, hold on. Y'all they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we like this too. And it's like, okay, no, this, this, this is not it. Not yeah. over here. But yeah, let's, uh, well, yeah, let's take a quick break. And then, yeah. uh, yeah, I want to keep talking about this. We'll be right back. You like to watch new stuff, right, Zygang? I know I do. Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time, like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump. Join Lisa and her hand-selected staff at Chateau Rosabelle, a glamorous estate in the French countryside, as they live, work, and play together 24-7. Vanderpump Villa is where... First-class luxury meets world-class drama. And don't miss the new season of The Kardashians, uh, starring The Kardashians, of course. And season five promises new horizons for the entire Kardashian clan. And if you're looking for steamy streams, check out Grand Cayman Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set on the tropical Caribbean island of Grand Cayman, where the rich come to play. But be warned, it's a small island. And secrets don't stay secret for long. So come check out what's new on Hulu this month. It's streaming now, and it's waiting for you on Hulu. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And what one just kind of universal observation from uh, a lot of the stories you covered, the, you know, 2020 protests in the U.S., like, there seems to be a universal, just like, People are like, fuck, fuck the police. Like a lot of the times, like the police really end up being, you know, you talk to somebody who is in Ukraine and is like the, you know, these Maidan protests are kind of seem weird and like neoliberal to me. And so I'm not into it. But then the second the police show up and start beating the shit out of people, it becomes like a national movement. Right. So I don't know. Like that, that just seems like it kept coming up like why wait why are we putting up with this a universal truth that like we all agree on like around the globe is like a cab like fuck (laughs) this institution please the i mean i think this is really so absolutely and this again this was i put together this book as a history it really kind of like if i'm if i've done it right it should hopefully read like a story and you can go through the events like a movie and and sort of see what happens and and connect with it, different things and understand uh, how things are interrelated and i think that if there was any value to doing that is to see what things pop up as similar and different and one thing that surprised me is how common this was the dynamic you just outlined where the first demand no one cares that much about there's a small thing at the very beginning or there's a you know there's some issue or some some interaction between one one individual and one police officer but then the the image of the police doing what they are literally trained to do which is to repress populations in moment of moments of apparent in, uh, illegality shocks the country so much that that that's what really sets off the the explosion that, that's what really what gets millions and millions of people in the streets and then at that point there's sort of this discussion as to what it is but I think there's two things there. One of them is that dynamic we are, we spoke about at the very beginning, like photography, like the, like the ability to instantly see because before, you know, the camera, but certainly before Twitter and Instagram, 
the average person is never going to see the things that cops actually do unless you live in, you know, unless it actually happens to you or you're walking in front of somebody. It's not it's not the case that every single person in the country can see what this actually looks like. But in the 2010s, everyone can see what it looks like. The, The most shocking thing that people have been saying about what cops do is recorded and everyone sees it at the same time. And often, as I said, at the beginning, it has like sort of a visceral reaction. And then, you know, and so there's the, 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 the possibility of seeing that and the reality of what it is that in the final instance often reproduces the very unequal societies we live in, which is violence, right? right. It, and like, as I say at the end of the book, in almost any country on earth, if you want to, or if you do the wrong thing, a cop will beat the shit out of you. That is like the nature of the system that we live in globally. So then even though the, the, the various demands from whatever, you know, Brazil to Ukraine are entirely different, the, the spark is, is very similar across countries. And then what to do with this huge energy, which is initially often directed at the police, that is something that is hard to translate into something else afterwards. Even in the case where, for example, like in Egypt, they like beat, they like, they went to battle with the cops and the cops lost. Like the cops were like ripping off their uniforms and running away. Like there was no more cops. The people would, or at least the people that were in the uprising on January 28th, 2011, like beat the police and there was no one left in charge, but they hadn't planned for that. They didn't know what to do. And sort That's of That's pretty strangely, definitive having your opponent rip off their uniform and run away. Like if that happened yeah. in sports, that would be yeah. <laughs> then you're, like, nah, yeah, you've no, won. Yeah. <laughs> That's not you us. Definitely, no. <laughs> you've definitely won if your opponent yeah. rips off, yeah, and like hides their clothes. But yeah, but then they didn't they didn't know what to do. But no, yeah, you're, you're right. This is something that popped up everywhere. The this is this is something that often got people very, very upset and willing to take risks to take action. And then even when it was uh, apparently incredibly successful, that, 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 that energy somehow or another could not be translated into the construction of something different, even in the most, even in the most surprising cases. Yeah. The speed with which the Brazilian protests go from a protest over fare hikes on public transport to get, getting the freeze on the fare hikes or the the what what they're asking for to then like the leftists who organized the first protests and leftists and anarchists like being pushed out like off of the streets by these like right wing and and that's that's something that like you know when you look at the definition of fascism it's like take the ideas the talking points and the methods of leftist organization organizing and use them towards your own ends but like the speed with which you see it happen in real time. Like that, yeah. I kept thinking about like the, the book felt like it was like partially about fluid dynamics, like just like how quickly things were like people would flood into this place and then like this other thing would come and but just wild the, the speed and real time energy with which that happens in that instance. Like the way that I said earlier that some people say, oh, I could relive every moment of that day for the rest of my life. Something similar happens with, with me in that week because the, the amount of days between the police crackdown on the leftists in Brazil that causes the country to pour out of the streets in sympathy and then the new arrivals who are on the beginnings of a far-right movement 
throwing those original protesters out of the streets is only seven days. But in yeah. my memory, so much happens. And I, I can remember like every morning, like every hour, something's different is happening in like Facebook groups because like the original group you know, is organizing on Facebook, like is putting out like press releases on Facebook. Like it seems like nothing like, oh, it's just a week. So much happened in in that week. And as you say, yes, people that we would now very easily recognize as the beginnings of a far right movement in Brazil, they came out wearing the yellow and, and green soccer jersey. Only a few days later, a few days after the police crackdown, actually, you know, beat the original organizers, rip their like they don't like rip their they don't rip their uniforms off, but they rip their flags down and they rip and they rip away their their left wing banners and they throw them in, into the streets and then they have, they just go home. And that was something that like nobody like nobody considered possible just four days previously. Certainly not the original organizers, not the government, not, I think, the beginnings of the far right themselves. It, and it was just an immediate turnaround that Brazil has been sort of reeling from for the last 10 years. And like, I'm not the only person to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how that, how that happened. Yeah. One of the things that like, I, I was really interesting, like, as you talk about how hope like football hooligans and ultras. Yeah have yeah. like played a part in some of these movements. Like as oh, yeah. I got more and more interested in European football, I realized how many of these groups have very like specific political views. And it's not oh, just yeah. like we fuck with this team. It's like, no, we're also anti-fascist and like, or we're neo-Nazis. Like you don't yep. know what the fuck you're going to get. Yep. Can you like, just like, can I explain like, cause I think that's a very specific thing, but like, cause in America we have sports fans, but not even, it's not the level of what hooligans are ultras, you know, like, cause many of these like can be gangs in certain instances, but like, what is There's that? There's no shared ideological content except with Yankees fans, I guess. Or with like, or Tom Brady's the goat, bro. Right. <laughs> yeah. like, does Tom Brady's the goat, bro, get you I mean, out there's there? Like certain, yeah. yeah, there's like certain characteristics of certain teams, like Raiders fans, you could kind of think of like a certain type of guy, kind of. Right. But with ultras and in general, like global football culture in general, the way that we do sports in the United States is like shockingly offensive to them. Like if <laughs> if the fans if the fans of the Brazilian version of the Raiders, which is there is one found out that the like their team was moving cities like there would be big problems like you. Right. That is like that is like that. Like I just I often just like tell Brazilians this and they get so mad that you can't. Right. They can't they're letting them how the sonics angry they just let the sonics angry. leave right <laughs> because these teams are in really really embedded in communities right like you're born right. a fan of a certain team that means something and as comes to matter quite a lot in the mass protests that i cover which political ideology a, gr a given set of football ultras or hooligans has really matters now again this is unexpected but if you think about it it makes a lot of sense oh well if you are, without meaning to, perhaps, calling for extended street battles with the police, who's going to be the best at that? Right. Well, in cities like Sao Paulo and Istanbul and Kiev, it is football ultras. They, they know each other. They have coherent identity. They have been battling cops for years. They know how to deal with this with street battles, right? And so... In 2013, again, like my my the brooch in the books is to, is to put in the book is to put like events in chronological order next to each other. There's three uprisings in 2013 that really matter in the book. 
Turkey, Brazil, and Ukraine in that order. And in all three um, cases, football fans end up mattering to the final outcome. Now, for totally, like, totally coincidental historic reasons, the football fans that show up in Gezi Park in Istanbul come with anarchist or communist uh, football banners. In Ukraine, it, it, for again, for, you know, the, the central Ukraine is not the only part of, of this region of Europe where you would have far right, far right uh, uh, football ultras, but it ends up mattering quite a lot to the outcome of Euromaidan that the football ultras that are in the region are on the far right. They end up playing a really big role in, in the outcome in, in Ukraine. And then in Brazil, you get a different type of football fan, which is the more the fan of the national team, which is a very specific type of Brazilian because like, right, I mean, I don't want to go too, too deep into this, but like regular Brazilians don't care that much about the national team unless they're winning. Right. Oh, interesting. They're like really, really loyal to Corinthians. Corinthians is the, is the Raiders of Brazil. And I'm going to explain why that matters. They're really, really loyal to the Corinthians, for example, but like the, it tends to be like an upper middle class, wider Brazilian that is in the stadiums at the World Cup because it's quite, it's very expensive to go. So, and then, so then this group of people that like, you know, throw anarchists and leftists out of the, out of the streets end up, ends up mattering. But then jumping forward to 2022, the election last year in which Jair Bolsonaro, the far right president who takes over in 2018, is trying everything he can to organize a coup. He tried to, to, he tried behind the scenes. He tried, he, you know, he tried in ways that Trump did, but he was much better at, he knew he's, he's from the era of the military dictatorship. He was trying in more sort of, let's say, informed ways. Mm -hmm. And right after the, the election, pro Bolsonaro Brazilians block the highways of the country trying to make a coup happen. So I'm stuck in Sao Paulo. I'm supposed to go to Rio. You can't go. The highways are blocked by the far right. The Corinthians fans in Sao Paulo, which is, again, the Raiders of, of Brazil, they're like the biggest, most raucous fan group. They're black and white. Like a lot of their like ultras have like ties to prisons. They, are, for whatever historical reasons, are pro-democracy, pro-Lula and center-left. They clear the roads. They go out and get... <laughs> like, get the fuck out of the way. Get, get the Bolsonaristas <laughs> off the road. One, because they, they believe in democracy and they support Lula, and two, because they have to get to a game that is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that right. is happening up the That's highway. Incredible. So if Corinthians wasn't playing Flamengo that day, maybe they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have helped or whoever they were playing, right? Yeah, I think yeah, it would have been, it would have been a, a Rio team. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is something that's unexpected. And then like the original leftists and anarchists in, in the Brazilian context, at least, they realize afterwards, because they really believe, and they really are horizontalists, they believe in sort of lighting the spark, causing the mass revolt, and then they wouldn't need to lead it because it would necessarily be good. It would be, it would be pushing history forward in the sense that we talked about, like, is there, is there a world historical time? They thought that that would necessarily push history forward. But one thing they realized when that didn't happen is like, oh, well, we picked a part of town where our allies don't really live. We picked a street battle in the center of the economic capital, whereas we care about more, more about the working class people mm. in the periphery. But we didn't think about like an extended battle. We just kind of thought you, you know, you light the fire. What is it like? It's like Bane. It's kind of Bane logic too. What is the thing like? Uh, what does the Bane say in the beginning of the Batman movie where he's like, he throws the guy to the the plane. He's like, "Well, you've lit the fire now. Like everything's taken care." There is kind of this 
Do you know the scene I'm talking about? Or yeah, I know I know the scene for sure. And the there's also like rising. a chant about the fire rising. Yeah, throughout the yeah. I just don't. I'm not off book on Bane quotes like I used yeah. to be when I was a <laughs> yeah. uh, right wing. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, but they weren't right wing at all. They, but they just believed, okay, well, you know, you light the spark and you, you step off yeah. the stage. And, that will, and um, the selection of the, bat- the battleground which they didn't, wasn't thought about too much because the streets were just sort of supposed to represent progress, ends up making football ultras matter quite a lot across this decade in ways that, like, you know, as strange as it sounds, without in any way trying to downplay the role that, of course, Vladimir Putin played in the aftermath of the crisis and criminally invading the country. Yeah. Still, to this day, you're kind of seeing things be different than they were if it were not for the involvement of those, of those ultras in Ukraine in 2013. Well, it's an incredible book. Uh, everybody should yeah. go out and check it out. And we, we've got to have you back on to kind of keep talking about this, especially in the context of, you know, what what the U.S. is maybe facing in the coming years, in the coming year, I guess. Coming year. <laughs> but Vincent Bevins, thanks so much for coming on. If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and The Missing Revolution is the book. Where can people find you, follow you, all that good stuff? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter, Vincent Bevins. The book, I have a little kind of like launch page for the book, which is www.ifweburn.com. That's probably like the best place to go. There you go. Uh, you'll find me there if, indirectly if you need to, but that's where I'm trying to get people to check out the book. Go, go do it. Is there a work of uh, media that you've been enjoying? I, I mean, this might not be an original answer for, for you, but there are, I've not been enjoying any of the media that I'm, consuming. <laughs> I'm, I'm consuming a lot of it i mean i wake up you know it's, it's horrible right like it's there is a dark time to be online i think yeah there's things that i'm paying attention to but oh man it's it's not like it's not like a joyous time in social media you know which is i think for re- better or worse and i think for worse where a lot of us like actually live most of the time but uh hopefully you know hope you know but again future lasts a long time and hopefully that it's not. It's not always going to be like that. I really, I really hope not. If if I didn't believe that it that it, that it didn't have to be like that, I wouldn't be doing this kind of work. So hopefully that I can start to enjoy something again. There someday. you go. Well, thank you, thank you again for joining us, Miles. Where can people find you? Is there a work of media you've been enjoying? Uh, you know, at based platforms at Miles of Gray. Find Jack and I on our basketball podcast. Miles and Jack got Jack boosties. boosties. Find me on Four Twenty Day Fiance, and you know all the stuff like that. Uh, media. I just said I watched the the first couple episodes of the Squid Game thing. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but the like I said in the trending yeah. episode, man, when that guy embraced his mom, it really did something to me. It really did something to me. Unless you hate is it good mom. though? Is it is it good? It's should it exist? Nah, like it doesn't. We don't benefit from its existence. That's for <laughs> okay. sure. So like, I'll put it there. You know what I mean? Okay. Like like I said earlier, like it's it it's the fact that the show was so good, it like is doing 98% of the lifting for the reality p- competition version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Just all the, all the like set design and all that shit that they stole from. The yeah. Show. Because no one's part. there being like, like it's not a commentary on like the squeeze of capitalism on like common people. It's just like, like it's like an influencer who's like, man, you know, Jesus was a competitor and so am I. <laughs> and you're like, fuck you. Dude. One of my favorite, <laughs> fuck one of my favorite competitors. Dude, he said it so arena, seriously man. though. He says it so seriously in this way where it's like, and that justifies any kind of like reptile brain shit I do in here. Yeah. That is really American Christianity though, isn't it? Oh yeah. yeah. 
You just have to say Jesus was prosperity like, gospel. Yeah. Hey yeah. man, Jesus was addicted to fast food. Have you done so, the Jesus workout? It actually works. You get shredded abs. You look fucking great. Yeah. What is it like? Building like no, building I'm just tables? joking. I'm just, <laughs> okay. Like that. That was the thing when I worked. I worked at ABC News, and they were always talking about like there's an inside joke in the media that if you put the words the Jesus diet or the Jesus workout on the front page of like anything that is like the hack for like you, <laughs> you will sell a million papers. And then since that yeah, time, see. I've like seen various permutations of that. You could one million percent get a lot of views on a well-produced the Jesus workout yeah. YouTube video. Because it would oh, just shit. be carpentry. Yeah, just carpentry. It would be a yes. car- carpentry mixed oh, with the, like the diet of of, of like the region of the time. wine. Yeah. yeah. Or it's like you drink water, wine, fish, and bread. They're yeah, yeah, there you go. Like there that were go. like miracle substances from Jesus. You're gonna yeah. need some red wine for breakfast, guys. Red wine, water. <laughs> red wine. Do lots red of wine, carpentry, yeah. lots of long walks. Yeah, exactly. Heat. And eventually you will walk on water and also take Only a big using bite tools of a trout. that existed at the time. Rocks mm-hmm. and yeah. Tweets I've been enjoying. Benny Feldman tweeted, Baby Seinfeld, what's the deal with this food airplane? And then Chrissy Yamaguchi Man just tweeted, uh, <laughs> Happy yeah, Folgers Incest commercial to all who celebrate. Uh, <laughs> if you're not familiar with the Folgers uh, Incest commercial, I highly suggest you go find him on Twitter at the Wapple House. And there you go. Yeah. Oh man, just the the sexual the thickest sexual tension I've ever seen on a filmed piece of on a moving picture. Yeah. And it's between uh, brother and sister in a like mainstream coffee commercial that seems like it was shot to like appear on the Today Show, <laughs> and they're just like within seconds of fucking each other on the kitchen counter when their parents walk in. Anyways, you can find me on Twitter at Jack underscore O'Brien. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Zeitgeist. We're at The Daily Zeitgeist on Instagram. We have a Facebook fan page and a website, DailyZeitgeist.com, where we post our episodes and our footnotes. Footnotes. Where we link off to the information that we talked about in today's episode, as well as a song that we think you might enjoy. Uh, Miles, is there a song that you think people might enjoy? Yeah, there was a new track from one of my favorite producers, Fred Again, that came out over the weekend featuring Baby Keem. You know, keep it at West Coast. Uh, but yeah, this is Fred Again and Baby Keem. It's Baby Keem is called Leave Me Alone. It's one word. And if you've liked any of the electronic music that I've suggested in the past, you're going to like this one. So check out Leave Me Alone, Fred Again with Baby Keem. All right. We will link off to that in the footnotes. The Daily Zeitgeist is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. That is going to do it for us this morning back this afternoon to tell you what's trending and we will talk to y'all then bye bye here's something you might not know about wireless sometimes what you see isn't what you get but with visible what you see is what you get switch to visible the wireless company that makes wireless visible get a one-line plan with unlimited 5g data powered by verizon just 25 dollars per month taxes and fees included switch now at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms visit visible.com something that makes me crazy is when people say well i had this career before but it was a waste And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.